Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle, rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. Glad that you could join us. Glad to have our guest today. We are going to be covering a topic that we haven't covered before in all the four years that we've been doing Go Green Radio. We've never had somebody on who can help us understand the vegan lifestyle. You know, a lot of environmentalists have gone in this direction. Some people are vegetarians, some people are vegans, but there are a lot of environmental reasons why people have made this dietary choice. There are also some other reasons why, and we're going to dig into that. But our guest today is Marisa Miller-Wolfson, and she's the director of an award-winning documentary called Veducated. I recently bought it on Amazon, and I was really – first of all, I was very entertained because it's it's got a lot of humor in it. But I was really, well, for lack of a better word, veducated. There were a lot of things I didn't realize, and we're going to dig into that and have Marisa help us understand – what is behind her movie um, and what are some of the things that we can learn um, and, and maybe even grow a little bit as human beings? So welcome to Go Green Radio, Marisa. Thanks so much for having me, Jill. It's such an honor. I love your mission. I love your tone of your show and um, how accessible you make green living to everyone. So thanks so much for having me on. Oh, well, thanks. It's our pleasure. Now, before we dive into talking about your film, Vegucated, which really is a terrific piece of work, um, I'd like for you to help us understand the difference between being a vegetarian and being a vegan. Sure. So a vegetarian is someone who eschews animal flesh, right? So they don't eat red meat or white meat like chicken, and they don't eat fish, but they still eat eggs and dairy. Now, a vegan takes it one step further and eats only plant-based foods, so no animal flesh and no animal byproducts like dairy or eggs. And that can extend beyond even a diet uh, regimen, right? I mean, in your film, you talk about some other components of being a vegan that had to do with uh, other products besides food. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Sure thing. Yeah, I mean, the focus of our film was mostly on food. Um, there are people who go vegan for health reasons, and it really is a dietary choice for them. But for most vegans, um, it's also an, an ethical decision that has to do with um, the clothes that you buy and the accessories you wear um, that, you know, usually come from animals, and but vegans, um, you know, try to find alternatives to those animal mm-hmm. products so that they don't 
consume any animal products, um, you know, whether for putting into their body or wearing on their body. Gotcha. Now, give us an overview of your film, Vegucated. Tell our listeners a little bit about the people in the film and the challenge that they had to live through for the filming of your movie. Sure. So, so Vegucated is a featured documentary that uh, tells the true story of three meat and cheese lovers uh, from various backgrounds who took us up on a challenge to go vegan for six weeks and be filmed throughout the process. We picked three uh, very different people from three different demographics. So we got a single mom who is a stand-up comic and a psychiatrist who is so busy she doesn't have time to cook. We got a 20-something-year-old bachelor who eats out all the time, uh, and we got his fridge is bare, <laughs> pretty much, <laughs> except for condiments and beer. And then we got a college student who uh, doesn't like vegetables or beans and lives with her Latin American family who really has no frame of reference for vegan living and actually thinks she's kind of loco for doing the project. <laughs> um, and we chose them to represent the different kinds of challenges that people may face in the process of going vegan. And um, we chose these three in particular because they're really funny. Um, as you mentioned, yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of humor in the film. And they're also really easy to relate to. Um, you know, it's really entertaining as you said to watch their, their ups and downs as they grapple with not just the hows, but also the whys of being vegan, how they're sorting it out psychologically, emotionally, and so on. Um, and we end up doing a lot of hands-on activities uh, in the film that open their eyes to some of the truths about what goes on behind closed doors on farms today. Mm-hmm. And we're definitely going to dive into that because, you know, I, I thought I knew about what was going on in the, for instance, meat production and dairy production world, but there was a lot that that I did not see um, at, beforehand and did not know. Um, let's talk about the three people you chose to be in the main cast of your film. Um, let's talk a little bit more about them. What was their original motivation to accept your challenge and did their motivation change over time? Let's be honest. You know, in this day of reality show celebrity worship, I think uh, all three probably wanted a little bit of screen time. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but they also did have real motivations for wanting to do the project. You know, like most Americans, they wanted to lose weight, uh, look good, feel great. Um, Ellen, who's the single mom, uh, she's older, obviously, than the two others. She uh, has heart disease in, fam- in her family and is very motivated to avoid that. Um, and it is fun to watch just how much better she feels on a vegan diet. But I think what's m- most exciting to watch in the film, and maybe you, you can agree or disagree, is how their motivation changed over time. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, they, they started the project for health and, well, quote-unquote, selfish reasons. Um <laughs> Not that your health is selfish, but, you know, vanity, et cetera. But once they learned what happens um, to all the animals in the agriculture industry and to the planet, they really became emotionally invested in that um, to the point that they were even willing to break the law just to expose what they hadn't known even three weeks before. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so there definitely was an evolution of motivation that happened as, through the course of the film. Well, and what I found so striking myself in watching this was that, you know, my view of of 
people who become vegans and have this compassion for animals was a little bit different than the the characters in your film. I mean, I always thought they were kind of um, hippie-ish, like maybe people who <laughs> were from affluent backgrounds who had the luxury of thinking about animals this way. And, and you know, I live in the San Francisco area, so we think of Marin County, you know, as kind of right. being in that world. But sure. these were people who were middle income, you know, just everyday people, um, really not hippie-ish at all, you know, and, and they mm-hmm. became really moved by what they saw going on in, in the film that they saw about meat production. And that's what really spoke to me is that you did a great job of showing how really normal <laughs> and every day these people were. Um, even you, you know, you talked about at the beginning of the film that you're from Evansville, Indiana. I'm from Mount Vernon, Illinois. So we're practically no way. neighbors. Way. I always wow. tell people on this show, great things come out of the Midwest. So that's right. The, your film is no different. Now, you know, there have been other documentaries that have talked about food and, and the food systems in our country, like Food Inc. A lot of people are familiar with that. What was it that you were hoping to present in Vegetation that you felt like hadn't been covered in other documentaries like that? Great question. Um, yeah, most documentaries, you know, like Food Inc. or even the more indie documentary Fresh, um, present the problems that come as a result of factory farming. Um, But the solutions that they offer are all about, you know, organic and local animal farming. Um, None of them even question the need for animal flesh and byproducts, and uh, and none of them address ethical and environmental concerns that come along with even local and organic uh, Mm -hmm. animal farming. In our film, we visit a local small family farm um, and are surprised to find out that they do utilize, you know, many of the same practices that that larger factory farms do um, just to even be competitive with them. Um, We also called an organic farm and uh, or had one of the film subjects that I gave her a list of questions to ask um, that most people don't think to ask. They don't, they don't know to ask them. And she got the real scoop. Um, that organic actually means very little in terms of animal treatment. I mean, it's certainly a step up uh, from factory farming in that animals access outdoors and aren't pumped up with hormones and antibiotics, but they do still undergo uh, painful procedures like castration, um, you know, without any kind of anesthesia. Um, And then most local and uh, locally raised organic animals end up going to the same kinds of slaughterhouses as other mm-hmm. animals, uh, though they may be the first run of the day on sterilized equipment so that their flesh isn't contaminated by the, uh, you know, the conventional an- animal flesh and mm-hmm. blood and stuff. So so I'd say, you know, many of the other food documentaries out there herald organic and local as this ideal solution when, you know, there's this whole other way of living and being mm-hmm. and eating without animal products um, that many people, including myself, would argue is, uh, in fact, healthier and more sustainable and certainly more humane um, and is becoming more and more popular and more viable. As you were saying, it's not just Marin County. It's, um, I mean, I've got folks, I've got friends from home who are doing it in Indiana. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, I think when I, when I became vegan, like, around 10 years ago, 
only about 1% of the population was vegan, and mm-hmm. polling from this year indicates that it's more like 2 or 3%, which doesn't sound like much. Um, but, but that's actually, up 300%. <laughs> right. Well, it actually translates to millions more. Um, my, my husband, he's funny, he's, he's Jewish. He jokes that there are now more vegans than Jews in America. Um, <laughs> and, and that's saying something. I mean, just in terms of it as a, as a growing, you know, more viable, more mainstream way to live. Right. Well, and there's a lot of benefits. Um, you know, like you were saying, I mean, just personal health benefits. You took each of your cast members to the doctor before they started this, this challenge to live a vegan lifestyle for six weeks. And one of the things, there were many things that the doctor who was in the film mentioned that were interesting, but one of the things that he showed was the link between cancer and the amount of unrefined plant food or UPF in a person's diet. And I was wondering if you could spend a couple minutes talking about what unrefined plant food is and then how it impacts the instance of cancer in societies where uh, more of this is consumed than maybe here in the U.S., Sure, sure. So let me just give a little bit of background on, on Dr. Furman himself. He's um, a family physician uh, who's treated thousands of patients and helped them uh, not just prevent but also reverse their their diseases. Um, and he's written best-selling books like Eat to Live and Super Immunity and Disease Proof Your Child. Um, many of your listeners might have actually seen him on PBS. He's got a health special um, on there as well. So he, he espouses what he calls a nutritarian lifestyle. So um, that's one that's full of nutrient-dense whole plant foods for optimal health. Uh-huh. And he, he bases that um, on solid Western science that shows that in studies around the world, populations that consume the highest amount of unrefined plant foods, or UPF, experience the lowest cancer rates, and other, quote-unquote, diseases of affluence. Um, mm-hmm. so that includes heart disease and, and diabetes, too. Conversely, populations that consume the highest amount of animal foods also have the highest rates of these diseases. Um, and then later in the film, we uh, reference scientific studies that show that a diet high in UPS can um, pres- prevent um, certain kinds of cancers like mm-hmm. colon cancer, which is tightly linked to um, the consumption of bread and processed meats, or like prostate cancer, which is linked to dairy consumption. Mm-hmm. Um, and then later we also reference studies showing that a healthy, low-fat vegan diet um, cannot just prevent heart disease and diabetes, but actually treat them better than um, than the common medications that are prescribed or the American um, Diabetic Association diet. And um, I don't want to give away the ending of the film, but <laughs> let's just say that all three film subjects uh, do find benefits um, mm-hmm. in, you know, they their blood pressure drops significantly, their cholesterol goes way down, um, which are two markers that we know are directly associated with, with heart disease risk. So we actually see this, you know, just in six weeks. And most people who, who go vegan for a spell, um, you know, they visit the doctor um, and the doctor kind of can't believe the um, how much their cholesterol has dropped and their blood pressure has improved. So it, it is exemplary of the general vegan experience. It's kind of like the opposite effect of what we saw in Super Size Me, which is one of my favorite 
documentaries of all time. <laughs> you know, I mean, I don't know if you're familiar with that, but that's the one where he eats McDonald's for a month for every meal. And what happens to his health as a result of all the greasy food is it, it's devastating. I mean, he almost kills himself eating this diet. But we've got to take that's a quick. True. I'm yeah. sorry. I was just thinking we, that was one of the inspirations for my film was was that film. I'm such oh, really? a big fan of that one. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Great. Well, it's a great one, and yours is too. Well, let's uh, let's take a quick commercial break, and when we come back, we're going to be talking about some of the environmental impacts of a non-vegan carnivorous lifestyle. So don't go away, folks. There's much more coming on Go Green Radio right after this. News, opinion, your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787, 1-866-472-5787, voiceamerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. If you're a golf enthusiast and looking for some great golf properties in the desert southwest, you'll want to make the Golf Realty Network your weekly stop. Hosted by Jane and Al Anderson, the Golf Realty Network is all about living where you play, on the golf side. You'll hear from the course pros and vendors, while the real estate side will bring you the top agents and brokers who know how to market or find your golf community home. Tune in to the Golf Realty Network, Wednesdays at 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety, and rebroadcast weekly on Voice America Sports. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. If you happen to just be joining us, don't worry, we'll catch you up. We're joined today by Marisa Miller Wolfson. She's the director of a film called Veducated. And if you want to check it out, you, she's got a great website that's got a lot of information. You can also buy the film there. Don't close this tab in your web browser. Keep listening to us on voiceamerica.com. But open up a new tab in your web browser and go to www.get.com. 
veducated.com. I'm going to spell that for you. Get G-E-T, veducated, B-E-G-U-C-A-T-E-D, getveducated.com. And there you can find all kinds of great information. Well, this is Go Green Radio, so it's not Go Vegan Radio. We have to talk about the environmental impacts um, of what this topic is all about. So, Marisa, I'd like for you to talk about the environmental impact of a non-vegan carnivorous diet and lifestyle. What are some of the environmental problems associated with, for instance, meat production and dairy production, even clothing production? What's going on there? Well, it boils down, Jill, to um, just a basic idea of so many resources going into something that ends up translating into not that much um, nutritionally at the end of the day that's going to benefit you. So you've got... Um, you know, whether it's the 50 gallons or more of water that, you know, even an organic dairy cow may drink per day or the tremendous amount of greenhouse gas emissions that all farm animals produce just by breathing and uh, digesting food. And then there's the tremendous amount of waste that uh, ends up rotting in these huge football field-sized lagoons on hog farms, for example, and and, you know, like you were saying in the break, they don't end up being flushed in the toilet. They end up being sprayed onto nearby fields. They contaminate groundwater and, and um, kill fish. And then uh, there's the whole carbon cost of the whole system. So at least eight times as much energy goes into uh, animal protein than plant protein production because you have all these intermediate intermediary steps um, mm-hmm. to get to the end product. So... Uh, you know, first, you know, to get animal protein, first you have to grow the feed grain, you have to transport it to the farm where the animals are, you have to operate that farm, you have to uh, transport the animals to the slaughterhouse and then process them and um, store their flesh. Um, whereas with plants, you grow the plants, you transport them to the processing facility or, or not if they're not really highly processed. Um, you run that facility and you're done. Um, mm-hmm. And, and what's, what's surprising to me as a greenie my whole life, um, and someone who's kind of vegetarian curious but thought vegans were radical and not <laughs> drinking dairy was radical. I mean, you know, Midwestern, dairy is such a big part of our diet. Um, yep. You know, it seems so benign, but it is actually one on the environmental working group's list of worst food offenders in terms of greenhouse gas emissions because of all the methane that's produced and grass-fed cow, while it certainly has many, many benefits, um, ends up producing four times more methane than grain-fed cattle. Um, and in the past few years, environmental leaders and policy advisors have finally, finally, finally been taking note and groups associated, you know, with the United Nations, um, and other large intergovernment organizations are advising a massive shift away from animal foods to meet the needs of a global population that's set to nine, 9 billion by mid-century. Oh, that's on your homepage, your description of your show. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that struggle, how are we going to meet these needs, um, you know, is, is a big deal. And in our film, we reference Regenda Pretori, uh, who shared a Nobel Prize with Al Gore. Mm-hmm. Um, he's the uh, chair of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is the largest international organization dealing with climate change. 
and he's been begging people for years um, to eat less meat just because it's so uh, carbon-intensive. Um, and then finally, um, well, I guess I should just say, when it comes to all the environmental and ethical elements, um, you know, associated with meat production, if you just scratch the surface, if you even just scratch the surface, you will find how inefficient it is and how cutting out the middleman or the middle cow or the middle pig um, makes it so much more sustainable. Well, and the thing is, I mean, you know, we're raising a lot of extra animals, cows, pigs, and chickens, to feed this you know, demand for more meat. If there was less demand, it's not like we would be slaughtering animals for nothing. We just simply wouldn't raise that many animals. And so one of the things that I found so striking, and I was mentioning this during the break, sometimes my break commercial uh, chats with my guests are, are the most fun. And we were talking about one of the statistics in Maurice's film that says that in the state of North Carolina, every day there's 10 times more pig poop produced than human poop now here's the thing with the human waste it gets flushed down the toilet and it's you know handled in our wastewater systems but with the pig feces you're talking about like she said these lagoons that supposedly hold it in um, but those are prone to leaks but then it's used as manure and sprayed all over crops now here's the problem with that ever wonder where these listeria outbreaks and salmonella outbreaks come from in your fruits and vegetables sometimes and many times we've talked about this in other shows on go green radio these this livestock that's raised for meat and dairy production are fed low levels of antibiotics which uh, besides ending up in our bodies as part of our food chain, these low levels of antibiotics, they don't actually uh, kill bacteria. Sometimes they create antibiotic-resistant bacteria. And if that ends up in their feces and gets sprayed onto you know, cantaloupe or lettuce or whatever, that's where some of these foodborne illnesses are coming from. So there's just this whole cycle of, you know, just kind of gross, nasty uh you know, situations here because we, we just don't have the means of producing, uh, the same systems to deal with waste from this system as we do the systems to produce the waste. And it's kind of, it's kind of unbalanced. Now, some people say, okay, I'm down with that. Meat production, kind of gross, kind of, you know, uh, inefficient, what have you. So maybe I'll just switch to seafood. What are some of the environmental problems that we're seeing associated with the fishing industry, Marisa? Right. Uh, fishing. So, you know, growing up in Indiana, I used to go fishing with my grandpa, and um, I had a pretty idyllic image of what that was like until I started to learn about it um, just in the last 10 years. I was on a plane sitting next to a guy from Iceland, and he, uh, you know, we got to chatting, and he said that the ocean floor all around Iceland has been scraped flat by the fishing industry, you know. And I wondered mm-hmm. how, you know, how does that happen? So he, he kind of started to explain, and then I started doing my homework on it. So you've got these um, bottom trawlers that roll along the ocean floor, and they just capture everything that they come across in these huge nets that can be, you know, acres wide. And they end up obliterating coral and, you know, flattening natural habitat that's absolutely essential 
for a healthy, diverse ecosystem. And unfortunately, a significant percentage of what goes into what ends up going into the net um, is non-target species. You know that the fishermen can't even do anything with. That's not what they're after. They, it's not profitable. Whatever. So after they're pulled up out of the water, they're sorted out and then spit back out into the water dead. You know, we're talking fish, we're talking you know octopus and coral, as I said, you name it. And besides, you know, drift nets and, and bottom trawling, there's also long lining um, where you've wow. got these hooks trailing from the backs of these boats that end up catching sea mammals and birds. Um, again, you know, animals that the fishermen aren't after and don't intend to do anything with. Um, so it's really kind of tragic, and it creates this huge imbalance. Um, and a pretty big study <clears throat> published in the journal Science came out a few years ago saying that as a result of these practices, um, already about 30% of the ocean species are in collapse. And actually 90% of the ocean's predators have been obliterated. So tuna, for example, um, is a predator. I didn't know that, but it's a pred- they're predators. And once you eradicate these important, you know, species, you're, you know, the whole ecosystem goes totally out of whack. And the study concludes... Um, by saying that if current trends continue, you know, with this overfishing and so forth, by 2048, all the ocean species will be in collapse, you know, and that will be it for the oceans. <laughs> uh, pretty depressing. Um, so, so many of us think, okay, you know, that's really awful. I'll just eat farm fish, right? Well, what most people don't know, and I certainly didn't know, is that farm fish are fed, fed ocean fish. So, so it actually takes several pounds of farm fish to feed one to create one pound of, uh, sorry, ocean fish to create one pound of farm fish. You know mm. so that doesn't work. Um, and then fish farms, if you even do a little research, you're going to realize they're, they're really uh, filthy. Disease is rampant. Um, some of these are even in the ocean. They're like these big giant uh, cages in the ocean, and then the diseases that sort of bred in these overcrowded conditions and seep into the wild fish population and cause all kind of problems. So so that, in a nutshell, <laughs> is why many of us prefer to eat chickpea, quote-unquote, tuna sandwiches um, that sort of mimic the taste and texture of tuna fish um, without, you know, causing this kind of harm. Well, and the thing is, we know that there are some people in the world, based on their geography and, you know, their inability to grow a lot of plants like island dwellers and things like that, they have to have fish. And there are some places in the world where it's too cold to grow a lot of crops, so they're going to be eating meat and they're going to be eating fish. Right. And we can sustain that. We can sustain those populations and their diets and you know, nobody's asking them to starve. But for those of us who have choices, that's what we're talking about, right? Absolutely. And we're actually, we're actually, just the way the, the laws work and the way laws are not enforced with the, within the fishing industry, these huge industrial fisheries are actually taking away the harvest from these local, you know, these local communities. So we're actually harming these other people who do rely on these food, these foods, you know, for survival. So mm-hmm. when we have it, I feel like you're like just like you were saying. For those of us who do have a choice, um, why you know why don't we pick 
something that's more sustainable and something that will allow others to, you know, be able to survive as well. You know, one of the things that surprised me in your film, um, because I had heard about, you know, some of the things with food production and meat production, but I didn't realize some of the things surrounding egg production that really made me sad and kind of grossed out. Can you just quickly kind of tell us what happens in that whole world that might surprise some of our listeners? Yeah, um, people are very, very affected by by what happens to those little chicks and just animals in general in the in the egg industry. You know, um, we think we're doing everything by doing cage free um, or being free range, but um, but that's not that's not the whole picture. So so let me just give a sense of like yeah. So what happens? So most chicks are born in hatcheries um, where they never meet their mothers. They're like in these drawers. These eggs are in these drawers that are incubated, and they hatch kind of in drawers. Um, and then right after birth, they're uh, sexed and sorted. The female babies um, will be subjected to the kinds of painful procedures um, without anesthesia that, you know, will prevent them from pecking each other and hurting each other when they're crowded in these cages. So like beak trimming and uh, toe trimming and um, and their little snood, it's like this little fleshy bit above their uh, mm-hmm. above their beak gets cut off also. Um, and then, yeah, they're put in these wire cages and stacked out on top of each other where they're so crowded they can't even spread their wings. Um, or if they're in an organic uh, cage-free facility, they're still usually put into a warehouse where they may only have a couple of square feet per bird of floor space, um, you know, to live their entire lives. Which not actually, what you think of as free range. <laughs> no, and it's not for more than a year to max, you know, when they're also killed for low-grade meat, you know, mm. like pot pies and stuff like that. Now, meanwhile, the baby male chicks who are sorted um, after hatching, they're not the kind, they're not the type of bird that's going to grow large quickly enough to be mm-hmm. uh, profitable for meat, so they it can be ground up alive in a turbine to be used for pet food or fertilizer, or they can even just be dumped alive into the into the trash where they crush and suffocate each other. Oh, it's just yeah, tragic. We're not, we're not talking about. I mean, we're talking about a, a couple hundred million birds in the U.S. Yeah. Um, who have this fate every year. It's really, really sad. And I hate to go to commercial break on a downer because we're yes. going to come back with an upper. We're going to start talking about some some really positive things. But uh, this is just one reason why I highly recommend that you get a hold of this film, Vegucated, because um, it, it could change your whole perspective on the food that you eat. And I think that's really important for us to go into our food choices, eyes wide open. We're going to take a quick commercial break. But when we come back, there's more Go Green Radio right after this. News, opinion, your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787, 1-866-472-5787, voiceamerica.com. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, 
strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business talk. Nine different energy systems make up the energy body. Energy is all around us and connects us. Energy exerts a major control over our biology and is a big reason why you should be tuning in to energy medicine and optimal health with your host, Dr. Ann Deatley. We'll explore energy balance techniques, tips, and patterns to keep your flow of energy optimal to maintain maximal health. By adopting these techniques, you will keep your energy body and physical body in harmony. Listen for Energy Medicine and Optimal Health, Mondays at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Health & Wellness. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh, yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. Just in case you've only just joined us, um, our guest today is Marisa Miller-Wolfson. She's the director of an award-winning documentary called Vegucated. And if you'd like to find out more about that, you've got to go to her website. It's a really cool website, and it's www.getveducated.com. Very cool website. Um, Marisa, you know, we talked about some of the environmental issues around a carnivorous diet and lifestyle. Uh, we talked about some of the compassionate reasons why uh, some people become vegans. We talked about some of the things that happen to animals uh, in that food and clothing production world. And there's a lot more of that on your film that it's not too gory. Even if you have a weak stomach, you can watch it, I would say. Um, but it is very eye-opening and something everyone should know about the, the food choices that they make and how that impacts these animals. Um, but I was really surprised to learn about some of the public policy around food production, like that there are no regulations regarding the transportation of chickens. And that's why sometimes you'll see these trucks just jammed with chickens. I mean, it's just unbelievable. And furthermore, that animals used for food and clothing production are not covered by the Federal Animal Welfare Act. Talk to us about the current state of public policy around these issues from a vegan's perspective and and what's on the horizon. Great. Thank you so much for bringing that up. Um, 
I mentioned my lovely husband earlier. He's a farm animal law expert. He teaches farm animal law at NYU, and he teaches animals and public policy um, there as well. And, you know, he used to joke when we first started dating, like, you know, nine years ago, you know, it's easy to be an expert in the field because there are no farm animal laws. Um, <laughs> in the meantime, that's not true anymore, so that's good, because um, we have had success in, you know, statewide ballot initiatives. We'll, we'll go there later. Um, I'll get into that in a minute. But but overall, the picture, there's um, a lot of room for improvement, shall we say, Uh yeah, farm animals don't enjoy the same kinds of protections that dogs and cats enjoy, even though they have the same ability to feel and suffer. Mm-hmm. Um, they are completely uh, exempted from the Federal Animal Welfare Act, so they don't have uh, animals don't have any federal protection on farms. The only federal law that uh, applies to farm animals is the Humane Methods of Slaughter Act, but that is so rarely, rarely, rarely enforced that it, like, basically, you know, doesn't exist, mm-hmm. more or less. And it doesn't include um, birds, which make up 9 of the 10 billion animals, farm animals killed every year in the U.S. Now, states have the ability to create their own laws. Um, unfortunately, most of them have com- what are called common farming exemptions, and that just means that as long as a practice is considered common, even if it's, you know, super inhumane, um, if everyone does it, um, then it's considered legal. So, uh, wow. but back, yeah, exactly. Um, but some states have the ability, like California, like your your beloved state, um, has yeah. the ability to create or amend laws through ballot initiatives, which I know California loves, um, <laughs> where the vote goes directly to the people. And uh, my husband and his legal buddies um, at the Humane Society of the United States, you know, they helped passed Prop 2 in California, which um, banned just over time, banned gestation crates for breeding sows and um, veal crates for, you know, veal calves and um, battery cages for egg-laying hens. And they've had success just state-to-state doing that. And as a result, some state legislatures have turned, um, have done, have passed their own laws in alignment with that. And now there's a federal bill, um, an egg bill, that's being considered um, that would also uh, create more space for, for chickens. So that's, that would actually be the first chicken bill, <laughs> federal chicken <laughs> bill. So we encourage you to contact your legislators, say you care about chickens, and, um, you know, and that you, that you support any laws that would um, give them more humane conditions. Well, and here's the deal. Even if, you know, our listeners out there are not, in any way inclined to become vegetarians or vegans, surely we all can agree that we want healthier food and healthier animals make for healthier food if that's the choice that you make. So um, I think it behooves us all to think about, I mean, we, a lot of attention has been paid, thankfully, um, to this issue based on, you know, the whole pink slime situation and some of the YouTube videos that, you know, have been out there on, on McNugget you know, uh, production. So I think now's a good time. People are becoming more aware of what they put in their mouths to think about um, getting involved in this issue. Ultimately, even if you really, you know, don't have any strong feelings one way or the other about, you know, the animals, you know, it's what you put in your own mouth that certainly we can all get behind. Now, let's say we do want to adopt a vegan lifestyle 
How do you begin, Marisa? I mean, it just seems like a huge shifting of the gears, you know, and, and, and does your body go through withdrawal? I mean, how do you get started on a lifestyle like this? We know it's a big deal for people. It was a big deal for each of us when we made the shift. So um, we created a resource, a couple of resources on our website um, that will help people with the transition. Um, we created this Veducated Challenge, and uh, people can sign up to take one of two tracks. They can sign up to go cold tofurkey, as we say, go vegan <laughs> for a month, um, or they can sign up to go vegan within a month, phasing out a different animal product group every week until they're vegan by the end. So when they sign up, they get one email a day for 30 days with a practical tip or trick that will help them along the way, um, and then we have a bi-monthly newsletter with more, more stuff after that. And we have slightly different advice um, depending on how quickly people want to make the change. Um, for folks who want to do it more quickly, I mean, more slowly, we might recommend, you know, before you phase out animal products, you phase in more vegan products. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, if you've never tried, you know, rice milk, buy that, put that in your in your cereal. Um, try all different kinds of brands because they all taste so different, um, you know, Rice milk's not going to taste the same as almond milk from a different plant. That's going to be different than walnut milk that you make in your own blender. So, so try lots of stuff. You know, consider it an adventure. We are here at this phase in history. You know, culinary and cultural pioneers in the kitchen. Um, so, you know, we can be empowered by grabbing cookbooks. You know, at our library or going to websites like VegWeb.com. Just having fun, trying stuff out. Um, you'll be surprised at how much new favorite stuff you'll find. You may not love everything you try, but you'll definitely find new favorites. Um, and you'll just be end up, you'll, you know, expand your palate and your, and your recipe repertoire. Gosh, I think we only make like, I think the average household makes the same 11 dishes, <laughs> basically, <laughs> rotating the same ones over and over again. When you when you incorporate more vegan stuff, you know you're switching it up. That's good for your body um, as well. So to find like shopping tips, health stores near you that carry more vegan foods, um, use websites like uh, an app like Happy Cow. I don't know if you checked that one out. That's a really good one. Um, you know, it'll just help you get the vegan lay of the land. Mm-hmm. So that and in it, you know, you have a little bit of a learning curve at first, but then it's then it just becomes routine, and it's not scary. And then the most important element, I would say, besides doing that, is, is getting social support. You know, in the film, Tesla struggles the most with that. You know, her mm-hmm. family not supporting her, her friends. Um, and it's amazing, we see, in the, we see in the film, how much people make your decision about your own food about them. <laughs> yeah. And they, you know, they may tease you and uh, bug you about it, but... Generally, that kind of subsides um, in time, and then um, you'll you'll be surprised by how many people you inspire just by your example. You're not proselytizing. You're not put you know quote, pushing your life, but you're just being you and reaping the benefits, and people you know see that. So, right. Well, um, I think one of the things that like thrilled me about your film was that a lot of the products that I already have in my house 
would be considered vegan. Like you guys went to, you know, a, a kind of a vegan grocery store in the film and you showed some different things. But then you went to a regular grocery store and one of my lifetime favorites, Double Stuff Oreos, made the cut. And I was thinking, <laughs> so if I eat those and just drink soy milk instead, I'm on board. I've, I've got my first vegan dessert. So I was kind of like, wow. So how, how can you tell if products that you're already shopping for are vegan? Like what, what should you be looking for? Well, you do become a really good label reader, um, especially if first do bring your reading glasses to the store <laughs> if you need them. Yeah, there, there are certain, um, you know, trigger ingredients that you learn aren't vegan, um, even though they sound like, I don't know what. So, so whey or casein or their milk proteins or gelatin, which, you know, comes from bones or hooves or something. Um, and there's some more obscure ones out there, but I actually think for the beginning, especially, People shouldn't get too consumed in tiny, you know, little micro ingredients. Mm -hmm. I, for me, this is all about progress, not perfection. And, you know, if you don't notice that whey is the ninth ingredient in a box of cereal you bought, please forgive yourself. Eat the dang (laughs) cereal and remember to get a different one next time. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, so it's, it's, it's about the bigger picture, I'd say. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the guests in your film discussed the China study, and I found that fascinating. Can you elaborate on that and talk to us about what's involved in the China study and how long this study went on? Yeah, so that started, I think, in the 70s um, by T. Colin Camber, Campbell, excuse me, who's Professor Emeritus of Nutritional Biochemistry at Cornell University. He's been on all these government boards deciding nutrition, you know, government nutrition recommendations and stuff, and they heralded, you know, protein as this, you know, animal protein as, you know, the be-all, end-all of nutrition Mm -hmm. and nutrients. But he started noticing links between certain populations between, um, you know, animal products and cancer. So they decided to go into, like, like 600 counties in in China, and they studied what, you know, all these people, thousands upon thousands of people ate and how they lived and the disease. And they found 8,000 statistically significant associations between diet and disease. And one of wow. the, you know, the, yeah. And one of the, the biggest findings was, uh, you know, the link between heart disease and animal products and cancer and animal products and diabetes and animal products. And now these um, populations where traditionally they've consumed a mostly plant-based diet, they're now really seeing, um, you know, the disease rates go through the roof in these developing countries as people become more affluent, as they're able to afford more and more meat and animal products. Mm -hmm. You know, it's puzzling to me that with information like this readily available, I, I can't help but wonder why we aren't being taught to eat in a different way by our doctors. Why, when I take my kids to the pediatrician, I'm not hearing anything about this. Or why, you know, government nutrition standards don't reflect this information. I mean, just this year, there's a big hoo-ha because the White House, you know, replaced the old food pyramid with the new food plate. But you don't see any of this type of information or any vegan or vegetarian leaning reflected in the information that we're getting from the people we really rely upon to give us the best information about health and nutrition. What's going on there? Well, first of all, let, let me let me just say that actually compared to prior guidelines, the food plate is an improvement and it does actually reflect 
more flexibility with regard to, to veganism. Mm-hmm. So instead of saying the meat group and the dairy, you know, meat group, they, you know, there's this plate. You've got fruits, vegetables, um, grains, and then protein. It doesn't, it's not the meat group anymore. It's the protein group. So, you know, that's a change. Um, mm-hmm. But there is a little glass of milk there on the side next to the mm-hmm. plate. And that, um, you know, it, it says dairy, I think. But if you actually read the recommendations, it says, you know, they say soy milk. And there are other alternatives that you can use. So even though it's called dairy, they also say, you know, because they also recognize millions of Americans are lactose intolerant. Um, now, how that translates to the advice that's given when we go to the doctor, that's a completely different story. Um, doctors get maybe an afternoon of nutrition training, uh, usually. So if you have nutritional questions, you know, they would say, talk to your doctor. Actually, maybe not. Actually, maybe not. You know, do some research, talk to a nutritionist. But your doctor, is, you know, that's not where they're trained. They're trained, you know, to prescribe stuff and deal with deal with disease once it's already happened. Not really, they're not really into preventative nutrition. And then finally, I will say, when it comes to the government recommendations, that um, the book, The China Study, which I highly recommend, T. Colin Campbell talks about what it's like to be on those boards because he's been on those boards. And they're highly influenced by the industry. In mm-hmm. one, you know, instance, the same individual chaired, you know, two of these boards, and he had lots of major connections to the dairy industry. So, unfortunately, we're dealing with a lot of, you know, industry and yeah, and, and that does yeah. get trickle down. Well, and, and I think that we see some of the same influence, you know, even with plant production when it comes to companies that have genetically modified products to sell. Um, not surprisingly, you know, they, they have a lot of influence as well. So um, shouldn't surprise anybody. But, you know, one of the questions that I think always comes up is whenever we talk about dietary changes is the cost. And this year in particular, we had a record drought. So when we're thinking about the drought, we're thinking about all of these wilted crops. Um, and we've been hearing that food prices are going to go up as a result. Talk to us a little bit about the cost of a vegan diet versus a carnivorous diet. And is it something that families living on a modest income can afford? Well, worldwide, that's a really great question. We get it at almost every screening. Um, and worldwide, it's interesting because vegan food tends to be the cheapest internationally. Um, you know, rice and beans and veggies have been staples for millennia, right? Mm-hmm. And meat has only become popular now that people are more affluent and have more access to it. Unfortunately, government policy in the U.S. doesn't, um, you know, privileges the meat and dairy industry, um, and the subsidies that they that they receive keep the prices artificially low. Um, but rice and beans are still cheap, um, and so is produce. If you go, if you cut through the middlemen and you know go to farmers markets, um, you, you know become a member of your co-op. You have to work some shifts so you can get cheaper food. You can join a community-supported agriculture program, the CSA. We get, um, in our CSA, we get more organic local food produce, and we know what to do with every week. It's like overflowing our fridge, and we share it, we actually share it with our upstairs neighbor. It ends up being $11 a week, um, wow. for all this produce. Um, so there, there are ways of getting around it. There are food deserts. There's so much work to be done. 
on the food policy front. Um, but when there's a will, there's a way. And if it's important to you, you will make the time to chop and uh, your veggies and to buy them cheaply and to make it work for you. Well, and I think another piece of this is, too, that, you know, the same crops that were affected by the drought are except for the gummy worms being fed to cows, uh, they make up the feedstock for the the animals that are used in meat production. So the price of meat is going to be going up as well. So when you take that into account, you know, then it makes a, a vegetarian slash vegan uh, lifestyle, you know, commiserate at, at a minimum, if not cheaper than a meat eating diet when, you know, meat prices eventually catch up with uh, the price of the feed for that those meat things. Now, we have about a minute left, Marisa, and I want to let our listeners know you're about to welcome a new member of the family. You're about to have a little baby, your very first one. And first of all, let me just say, any excess stuff that you have in your fridge, if it's a boy in about 15 years, you will have no excess in your fridge in terms of produce. So don't worry about that. that he'll take care of it. But uh, we have about a, a 30 seconds left. How are you looking for resources to introduce a vegan lifestyle to your baby? Oh, thanks so much for bringing that up. I am so excited. We are having a boy, by the way, so we're going to have to have a lot of food in the house. (laughs) There is so much out there. The American Dietetic Association, which is the largest group of nutritional professionals in the U.S., they put out position papers on how healthy vegan living can be at every stage of the life cycle. And as more and more people are vegan, are going to be more and more families are. Um, Trina Burton has a great blog. She's got a great, um, she's got a great website. She's a mom. Um, she has great cookbooks called Viva La Vegan. Uh, Dr. Furman has this book, Disease Proof Your Child, and he has very specific guidelines. I mean, it's not, you have to put some intention into it, but it's not you know, something that can't be done. It's becoming more and more popular. And it's really exciting to be part of raising a generation who has this consciousness and who will have the benefits from the start, from in utero, on healthy, sustainable, and humane living. Well, that's wonderful. And our congratulations go out to you and your husband. Uh, We want to keep in touch and and maybe do a follow-on in a few months to see how that's going. But thanks for joining us, Marisa. Thanks to all of our listeners for joining us as well. We'll have much more Go Green Radio, same time, same place next week. Until then, have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.